With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Anderson, too much deflected. into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown! Big return for Crowder, 85 yards! Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott, it was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff, you know and what? it's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh! Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And it's draft season, so reaching out and talking to some of the most fun people to talk to this time of year and some people who have some great perspectives and have really studied the draft. One of my favorite people to talk to is Brett Coleman. He was on the podcast last year a couple of times leading up to the draft and after the draft. His videos are among the best you're going to find because I think they're the perfect mixture of well-produced video and very informative football takes. You don't get that in a lot of places. Usually it's one or the other. You get something that's produced very slick, but the knowledge base in it is not very high. Or you get a really informative video that looks like it was shot in somebody's basement. This is first class all the way. He's one of the best out there. And there's a reason why he has so many subscribers on YouTube. I'm talking about Brett Coleman of The Film Room. Brett, thanks so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. The first thing I wanted to ask you about was the videos that you created, and then we'll go through general draft observations. So let's start with your video that I think is going to be the most relevant to Jets fans, at least in the lead up to the draft. We'll see where everybody goes. You did a video on Tristan Wirfs versus Jedrick Wills. And just so there's no confusion, not who would win in a fight. The video is which guy is better than the other and why. I thought you had some really fascinating observations here you like both players but you do prefer Jedrick Wills why because he especially this offseason of all offseasons where there's not really going to be a whole lot of offseason workouts if any um, and I think having a tackle that is pro ready day one that already knows everything he's doing in terms of footwork, hand placement, you know, using independent hands and pass protection, not just two hand punching all the time, um, knowing how to study opponent's tendencies so that he can use different techniques to counter different things based on what he notices and stance and everything like that, which you saw him do against Tennessee. I mean, he was, I I reached out to him and I asked him about it. He was, he was reading pre-snap stances and, and figuring out their moves based on that. And then, you know, literally throwing the perfect counter technique to beat him. So He's extremely smart, he's super explosive, super athletic, uh, extremely good technique, 
Um, there's really nothing wrong with him at all. He's probably the best tackle I've seen come out since Laramie Tunsil. Um, he happens to be in a probably a generationally deep tackle class, so there's no guarantee that he's going to be the first one taken because every team seems to kind of prefer a different guy. So there is a slim possibility he's there for the Jets, but if he is there, I think they should run in the card because especially with having no off-season program, you want to have a tackle that, that can come in day one and not really need a whole lot of work, um, which I think works needs a little bit of work. And uh, that, that, that to me makes him even more valuable than he already was. It's really interesting to me, Brett, that a guy like Jedrick Wills, who I think is an excellent athlete, isn't being talked about as an excellent athlete because you have Tristan Wirfs and Mekhi Becton in this same draft. I think pretty much any other year, People will be talking about what an exceptional athlete Jedrick Wills is for his size at the position. But because of Werfs and Becton, he gets overshadowed in that area a little bit. Yeah, which which is unfortunate because I think, like I said, in any given year, he would be the top tackle, no question. But because you have you know, a 6'7", 370-pounder that can run damn near sub-five flat, and you have Werfs, who's probably the most athletic tackle prospect we've ever seen, um, in the same class, it kind of overshadows them a little bit, but it, it, beyond just being athletes, Wills is just straight up a better football player, which obviously is the thing we're looking for at the end of the day is a good football player, not a good athlete. Um, not to say the other guys are bad football players, but just when you, when you directly compare one to the other, to me, it's, it's not really close. As you make clear in your video, though, while you much prefer Wills, as you just said, and you described why, this is not to say that you don't like Tristan Wirfs, because I get the impression that if Wills weren't in this draft, you could drop Wirfs into this draft, and he would easily be in consideration for OT1, and I think he would probably be in consideration for OT1 in most drafts, right? In a lot of them, at least. I I still think Andrew Thomas should go ahead of him this year, which, again, just speaks to the crazy depth of this class. The fact that you have a guy like Worfs, who in most years would easily be the OT1, and in this one he might be OT3, maybe. Uh, and so I, I think, and we'll, we'll probably get to Thomas eventually, but the fact that he has two guys ahead of him that I think are going to be 10-plus year starters at tackle and, you know, perennial Pro Bowl type guys just kind of speaks to how good this class is and that's not to say that again I don't like worse I like him a lot but there are some things he needs to clean up um, his hand placement is very inconsistent his feet are very inconsistent he likes to kind of give a soft shoulder inside way too much and get beat by inside moves I think awareness against stunts still needs a lot of work that was one thing that I liked a lot about Wills too is he always knew exactly what was going on he was hyper aware against stunts and games and blitzes whereas worse I, I think um, got lost a little bit especially um, on uh, uh, TE stunts you know on an ET stunt where the end is the one that's setting it he would kind of naturally wash inside but on a TE stunt where it's the tackle that's setting it he wasn't really good at looking for it and so he would he would get taken apart by those sometimes so you know, there's a lot that he has to fix, but the good thing is that he's he's got such a, a good basis to work from uh, athletically that I think you could at very minimum put him at guard year one where he's a little bit more protected and just kind of let that athleticism take over. 
And then as he kind of learns more uh, and gets more developed, you can eventually kick him out to tackle, which is not a bad thing. You know, Tunsil started out at guard. Uh, John Ogden started out at guard. Like, you can take an athletically freaky tackle and put him at guard while he learns the pro game. That's not a bad thing. But I do think if I was his coaches, that's probably what I would end up doing. Since you brought up Andrew Thomas, let's talk about him a little bit. You have him ranked over Werfs. And the thing that's interesting about these four tackles, I think, is that if you were to take 50 major decision makers slash draft experts, scouts, coaches, whatever, and ask them to rank these four guys, you might get 50 different answers to the question in some way. I don't even know if that's physically possible, but it just seems like no matter who you ask, they have a different order for these four guys. You're saying that you have Wirfs as the number three tackle with Wills number one and Andrew Thomas number two. What is it that you really like about Andrew Thomas to put him ahead of Wirfs and have him as your OT2? power and technique. Uh, his feet are not as good, or at least not as quick as the other two, um, but he's still very under control. He's got excellent length, and he knows how to use it. His punch is extremely powerful, and once he gets his hands on you, you're, you're pretty much done. He, he plays a lot like Andrew Whitworth in that way, where, you know, even in his old age, you know, Whit's feet maybe aren't the best, but uh, or at least not the quickest. But Whitworth is so good with his hands and he's so good at using his length and size and power that if you just kind of get within range of him and you don't clear his hands over and over and over again, eventually he's going to get inside your chest. And once he is, you're, you're, you're flat out done. And so Thomas is just this big, overwhelming mauler. Like he, he plays the game, honestly, like people think Mackay Becton play, plays the game. Um, but he actually does play it that way and he plays it better than Becton. Um, so I, I think again, is he, does he have the athletic upside? No, but he's a really reliable run blocker. He's extremely strong. He knows how to use his hands. Um, I think he's going to be an easy 10 year pro maybe again, not the same ceiling as wills, but the floor is certainly just as high. I've often said that I could see Andrew Thomas being sort of like DeBrickishaw Ferguson, and I don't mean that in terms of style or anything like that. I just mean that exactly what you just said. He could be a 10-year pro who could come in, maybe not be an all-pro, but be a really good tackle and lock down the position for a decade. That's what you see Andrew Thomas as? I mean, you, you've seen how the Jets line has handled uh, since Brick retired, you know, they, they never really recovered from that. So if you can get somebody who at least can play at that level for the next 10 years, you'll be just fine. What about Mekhi Becton? It sounds like you're kind of down on him. Now, obviously, there's a lot more work to be done with him than the other three, especially Thomas and Wills, who seem to have the best technique of the bunch. But the upside is off the charts. I like Becton a lot. I think if you've got even halfway decent offensive line coach, you should be able to get this guy to be a really good tackle. Whether or not he gets to be a generational talent, as Joe Thomas has suggested, is possible is another story. But I think worst case scenario, he's at least a decent tackle, even if you don't get him to that level that you're hoping that he reaches. Is that where you're at with Becton? Do you think that he has the potential to get to that top, top level? And how likely do you think it is that he reaches it? Um, I would say there's a, it, it depends on what team he goes to in terms of reaching that potential. You know, he kind of reminds me a lot of Orlando Brown, 
where it, it, it can kind of look ugly at times, but it's still pretty damn effective. Again, just because he's so big and he's so strong and long. Uh, remember, a lot of these pass rushers these days are on the lighter end, on the smaller end, and so they don't really have the power to just go through him, so they have to go around him. But his radius is just so damn big that it, it's tough for them to get around him in under three seconds, which is what you need to do to be able to get to the quarterback. So even if it doesn't look pretty, you know, if, if the quarterback still isn't getting touched for more than three seconds, then guess what? He did his job. And so I think if he gets a coach that can kind of um, iron out some of the things that make him lose early, like, you know, maybe leverage problems or opening the gate a little bit too much with his feet um, for inside moves, like if, if you could just kind of get that out of him, and again, he only took it was like 72 true pass pro sets all of last season, which is super small. He made most of his hay as a run blocker, which obviously he's very good at. But, you know, if you can get a more experienced kind of coach out um, some of the uh, little quirks with his technique that I think can cause him problems against pro caliber pass rushers, then, yeah, he could very easily be an Orlando Brown type tackle that is a very solid starter that uh, really knows how to use his size and strength to his advantage and, even if it doesn't look pretty, uh, at the end of the day, the quarterback's still throwing the ball and not getting hit, so I'll take it. If you're the Jets sitting at number 11 and one of these four guys is available to you, would you pull the trigger no matter what? Uh, on the first three, yes. When it comes to Becton, it would kind of depend on who else is on the board because I think the Jets have four primary needs that are not really debatable. You need outside receiver, you need tackle, um, you need edge depth because their starters right now, um, it's Jenkins and uh, Harvey Lange, I think it is, right, on paper. And so I still I still think you need help there. And then even though you just signed to Sear, um, Poole to me is really more of a nickel. So I think you still need help outside at corner. So I think, you know, C.J. Henderson's still potentially uh, in play for 11 there. So there's four main positions of need. And so I would weigh all of the guys that I have at those other positions against essentially Becton. So now you're making a decision, okay, am I taking Becton or C.D. Lamb? Am I taking Becton or Jerry Judy or Ruggs um, or C.J. Henderson or Caleb on Chason or Yitor Grossmatos? And I think when you when you start to realistically compare those names against Becton, he starts to fall down on the priority list a little bit. So the top three tackles, 100% I would take them, but uh, once you get into number four, and then but you still have top flight guys at other positions, that's when it can get a little bit dicey. Let's talk about one of those other positions of need: wide receiver. Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, and Ceedee Lamb are the three that everybody's talking about. But I want to talk about the guy that you call a sleeper superstar at that position, and you made a great video with a persuasive case to that point, and that's Denzel Mims of Baylor. Talk to me about what you think he could become at the next level because I like Mims a lot. I don't think there's any way that he's there for the Jets at number 48 based on what happened at the Combine. I think he's more or less a lock for the first round. So unless the Jets trade down from 11, I don't think that he's a realistic target. But then again, they may trade down. We don't know what Joe Douglas is going to do. This is his first draft as a general manager. Talk to me about Mims and what you love about him so much. He plays a lot like DeAndre Hopkins, just in terms of physicality, um, in terms of even if a corner is in a good position, he's just going to out-muscle you to the ball. 
He's very good at, even if he's out-leveraged on a route, he'll use his length and strength to literally just toss corners around the field and take the leverage for himself. Very good on jump balls, excellent ball skills. Not quite the same ball skills as Hopkins because nobody has the same ball skills as Hopkins, but uh, he's he's pretty close. Um, and But he has a little bit more of a vertical element than, than DeAndre had coming out too. Um, I, I think he's a diverse route runner, especially in his releases. He's a little bit more nifty than people think. A little bit stiff, but uh, I mean, still just – if you're subtle, if you have vertical juice, if you have ball skills, if you're physical, like that's still like four out of five traits that he checks off the boxes here. So I think Mims is one of those receivers where he's going to play a really long time. He's almost system proof because who can't use a good physical jump ball receiver. Um, I, I think if you pair him with a Sam Darnold who, you know, Sam had his problems early last season, but started to come on late again for the second straight year. It seems like he gets better as the season goes on. You pair him with Sam, you know, somebody who can actually throw a good back shoulder fade, and I think he could be extremely successful. I want to get back to the big three receivers in a bit, but first let's talk about some of the other ones. Any that you like in particular that you think would be a good fit with the Jets, maybe at number 48 or the third round, the fourth round, the fifth round, whatever? I look at K.J. Hamler out of Penn State, and, I mean, he is just a can opener on offense. Uh, his ability, like, you can put him in the slot. And a lot of nickel corners these days don't have a lot of speed. They're really more built for quickness. And he is he's a legit, like, mid-4-2 kind of guy. And so if you get him matched up in man coverage on a slot and you're occupying, let's say you're, you're playing against cover one and you're occupying the free safety on the other side of the field with, I don't know, insert whoever your outside receiver is going to be. I guess it'll be Brashad Perriman maybe. Um, but you get Hamler essentially one-on-one with a nickel corner. He's going to run right by him every single time. So I, I think he is a true deep threat in the mold of like a Deshaun Jackson. You can put him at Z. You can put him in the slot. You could run some gadget stuff with him. He's a good return man. He's got great ball skills. He's tough. Is he that big? No, not really. But he plays bigger than he is. I, I love K.J. Hamler. I think he's an easy second-round pick. I think he'll probably be there at 48, um, and, and he's going to end up being a much better player than people think. Play like a Jet. Play like a Jet. Let's talk about the big three now. Jerry Judy, CeeDee Lamb, Henry Ruggs. You're sitting at number 11, and the three tackles that you said you would definitely pick are off the board. Becton is there, but the three wide receivers are also there. Would you consider picking one of those three at that spot? And what do you like and dislike about those particular three wide receivers? I would definitely consider all three of them uh, for different reasons, mainly. Uh, Lamb, I think, is probably the, the most complete out of the bunch in terms of having size, ball skills, route running ability. He doesn't quite have the same speed as the other two, but um, he certainly has enough speed. I mean, four or five flat is more than enough in the NFL. I think Daniel Jeremiah put out a good stat that, like, in terms of top 10 uh, receiving yards and top 10 in receptions in the NFL last year, their average 40 times was 4.53. So, it, again, 4.5 is plenty of speed. But, again, he's got phenomenal ball tracking ability. Uh, he's a really, really good route runner. He's very laterally explosive. And uh, I think off the line, he's really he's tougher to handle than people think. He's not just one of those big 12 receivers that doesn't know how to run routes. Um, I think Judy is the best route runner of the bunch, followed closely by Ruggs, but Judy is just out of this world in terms of 
um, how sharp everything is, how crisp everything is. I mean, when he slams on the brakes and goes 90, it is instantaneously. It kind of looks a lot like a Marvin Harrison, just in terms of how much separation he can get uh, at the top of his routes. Ball skills are not quite the same as Lamb, and he certainly doesn't have the same vertical juice as Ruggs. But in terms of just pure possession, like get open on third down kind of receiver, uh, that's Judy all the way. And then Ruggs, he is fascinating to me because, yes, he has that low 4-2 kind of speed, but he's also a really good route runner, and people don't give him credit for that. He's a lot more versatile than people think. He doesn't have the the same kind of go up and get it skills as like a CD Lamb in the red zone, but – between the 20s, he's going to be an absolute nightmare to cover because he's really good off the line. He's very subtle in terms of how he can stem corners and get them uh, moving in directions that he wants them so that he can then snap off routes. Um, I, I love everything about Ruggs. I think in most years he would probably be the number one receiver, but he just happens to be in a, in a truly loaded class himself. You could argue for any of them at 11 overall. I think personally I would probably take Lamb because I think you guys, above all, just need somebody who can dominate in the red zone. Um, I think you have some deep speed options all there, uh, there already. Uh, Perriman, I think he's still got more juice than people think. And, and again, like I said, you can get like a KJ Hamler or a Jalen Rager uh, if you want to double up on receiver and get a speed threat. But you know, you you really do need somebody who can do a lot of work in the red zone with Sam and kind of put some points on the board. So for your situation, I would say Lamb is number one. Um, Rugs maybe number two, and then Judy number three, but you could argue for all of them. You pinpointed very accurately the major needs for the Jets this offseason heading into the draft, and one of them is edge rusher. Before we get to some of the guys that will be available to the Jets, let's talk about one who almost certainly will not, and that's Chase Young. You made a video on Chase Young, and you made a persuasive case that he's the best edge rusher that you've ever watched, and to be honest... At the collegiate level, he may be the best edge rusher I've ever seen. As I've told people, it's like watching a cheetah play edge rusher. I've never quite seen anything like him. Talk to me a little bit about what makes Chase Young so special. If if you take some of the best techniques or be- best technical pass rushers we've seen in college, which would be the Bosa brothers, they were coached by the same defensive line coach at Iowa State. And obviously, you know, Chase Young is also credited to the Bosa brothers with him developing that kind of swipe dip move that he dominated with so much. Um, he kind of got that from them and, and worked on it and turned it into a, a just a powerhouse move, uh, which uh, the Bosa brothers have also, you know, been powerhouses in the NFL with literally just that one move. But, you know, you take that technical perfection and you put it in the body of somebody like Miles Garrett, which is what Chase Young is, and now you have a whole different animal. You know, he has the same um, polish as the Bosa brothers, but is far more athletic than either one of them. And that's saying a lot because they're both pretty athletic. But he's bigger, he's longer, he's faster, he's more explosive. And I've never seen anybody like this before. Like, Miles Garrett was close. Um Jadavian Clowney and Khalil Mack were close in their own respective ways, but none of them were as complete a package as Chase Young. There is literally nothing wrong with him. I mean, absolutely nothing wrong with him. And uh, I, I think there's there's a few rare prospects every now and then where you're, you're struggling to, to not give them a perfect grade. Um, 
you know, Ron Wolf famously said that Bo Jackson was his only ever perfect grade. Daniel Jeremiah said that Reggie Bush was his only ever perfect grade. I think Chase Young is my only ever perfect grade. We know that, unfortunately, the guy with the perfect grade, Chase Young, is not going to be available for the Jets at number 11. But there are other edge rushers who could be available at 11 or beyond. Kalevon Chason is a player who's been mentioned as a possibility for the Jets, and there are others that could go in the mid-rounds. What do you think of Chason? Do you think he's worth consideration at number 11? And are there other edge rushers that you like for the Jets? Because as you mentioned before, it's certainly an area of weakness that they need to improve upon. He's worth consideration for the Jets, but Jets fans need to understand what Chason is. Um, You're not bringing him in to get 12 to 14 sacks. You're, You're really not. You're bringing him in to generate pressures. You're bringing him in to play coverage on tight ends and running backs. You're bringing him in to be a movable chess piece. You're bringing him to play special teams, to be a locker room leader. Um, I think he is exceptionally explosive. He's got great hips. He's got great bend. He's not ultra powerful, so he's not uh, as versatile a pass rusher as like a Yitor Grosmatos or a Chase Young. Again, he's he's more of a, a Robin than a Batman but he's a really damn good Robin, and he's one of those kind of players that you really build, build your team around because of their versatility, their work ethic, their leadership. You know, he is going to be a really, really good player for somebody, kind of in the mold of like a more twitched-up Kyle Van Noy is how I like to put it. And Kyle Van Noy is an excellent player. He did a lot for the Patriots' defenses the last few years. Um, you know, they, they owe a lot of their success to his versatility and what he was able to do. Chase on his literally that exact skill set but way more athletic so if you're willing to draft a player like that and be comfortable with him getting maybe like six or seven sacks but then doing a whole lot of other things uh, and not just somebody who's just going to come in and get sacks then yeah he's worth up at 11 but Jets fans contextually need to know what he is so that they know what their expectations are because a lot of the things that make him such a good player are things that don't show up and uh, don't show up in the stat sheet Anybody else you like at the edge rusher position, maybe in the mid to late rounds? Uh, in the mid to late rounds, I think probably Alton Robinson out of Syracuse is worth taking a look at. Really, either of the Syracuse guys, but Robinson is the the more kind of twitched up, and, and he, he's got an NFL frame. He's big, he's tall, he's long, super explosive. Doesn't quite know what he's doing yet in terms of technique, but there's a lot there for a coach to mold. Um, there's a, a guy to Notre Dame, Khaled Kareem, who I think is right up Greg Williams' alley, just in terms of just being this big, almost immovable monster against the run off the edge. He's like 270 pounds, um, but he's got a whole lot of length. He really knows how to use the length and power as a pass rusher. Again, he's not going to be somebody who puts up like 12 to 14 sacks ever, but you can get six or seven out of him, and he's going to be a really good run defender. He's going to be a really good special teams player. He's going to be really good in the locker room. And – you know, unfortunately, this class, if there's one weakness to it, they don't have a whole lot of edge guys that you can look at and be like, yeah, that's an all-pro. There's probably only two of them, and that's Chase Young and Yitor Grossmatos. Um, but there's a whole lot of guys after those two that you could look at and be like, he's going to be a really solid contributor for a really long time. And so if I was the Jets, I would, I would probably, if I'm not going after Grossmatos at 11, which to me would be justified, if I'm not going after him, then I would just try to accumulate as many of those kind of contributors as possible on like day two and day three. 
and more come at you in waves than just relying on one guy to get it all done by himself. Speaking of contributors on day two and day three, I don't think the Jets are going to be going running back in the first round, but they could go running back later on in the draft. And one guy that you say is one of the least talked about and most underrated players in this draft is Clyde Edwards-Hilaire from LSU. Talk to me a little bit about him and why you think he could be such a sleeper pick here. So he's 5'7". He's about 207 pounds, ran a 4.6 flat 40. Um, everybody thinks, okay, well, what, what, what can I do with a small, slow running back? But then you put on the tape, and it didn't matter if it was Clemson, Alabama, uh, Georgia, Texas A&M. I mean, he, he was a dominant football player every single time they took the field. And they played a lot of top 10 teams last year, and he absolutely ripped them to shreds. He's extremely explosive in quick areas, very fluid hips, really good vision, super versatile as a receiver. Uh, you know, he played both the Mark Ingram role and the Alvin Kamara role in that offense. Keep in mind, LSU was basically running the Saints offense, and he he played both of those roles at the same time and did so fantastically well. His uh, uh, his running style, I kind of liken it to a mix of like Devontae Freeman and Le'Veon Bell in terms of his patience where he'll literally just kind of do that Le'Veon Bell style, like stop right at the line, read, and then burst. But his feet are better than Bell's. Maybe not quite the same speed as Bell, but his feet are more like Devontae Freeman, which are just incredibly quick. I mean, he can get to whatever hole he wants to immediately. And so I, I think he's a, a an interesting kind of hybrid in terms of uh, feet, in terms of stature, in terms of running style between Freeman and Bell, who are both two really, really good running backs, or at least they were in their primes. Uh, and plus, I think he, he, uh, he has Bell's receiving versatility, too. You can put him out in the slot all day long and be just fine. So I really love Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. He's definitely not going to go in the first round because, again, he's 5'7", he ran a 4'6", and his deep speed, or should I say lack of deep speed, really shows up on tape. But I love everything else about him. I think he's going to be a really good pro for a really long time. Um, and, and again, if you're pairing him with a Le'Veon Bell, man, that's a, that's a pretty damn good backfield to me. Any other running backs you like as a potential pairing with Le'Veon Bell? Uh, Cam Akers out of Florida State's a really interesting one to me. He's got, again, really, really, really good feet. He's more... He's got more juice in terms of long speed than Clyde Edwards-Alaire, but still very similar to uh, short area quickness as well. I think Clyde might be a little bit quicker in a 10-yard box, but Akers is that far behind. So it's kind of a trade-off between losing a little bit of short area quickness and ability to kind of just scrape through trash like it's nothing versus long speed and, and turning long runs into touchdowns. I think Akers has a little bit more juice that way. Uh, also a very good receiver. He's a former quarterback in high school, so you can kind of even get a little bit tricky with him if you want to do some, uh, like, you know, double pass type stuff every now and then. Um, you know, we, we know how uh, in that division the Patriots have really liked former quarterbacks in high school on their rosters that are skill position players so they can pull out trick plays every now and then. Akers, I think, kind of gives you that versatility. Again, he's going to play special teams as well. Um, really good locker room guy. I, I love everything about him. Uh, you could argue him potentially going ahead of Edward Tolaire because, again, he's got a little bit more juice. But, um, man, I, I think he would be an excellent pairing with Bell and potentially be a long-term option after Bell if, if this is indeed his last year as a Jet. 
Brett, one position you haven't made any videos of yet that is obviously very important to the Jets and a big need is corner, as we discussed before. Now, I don't envision a scenario in which Jeff Okuda makes it to number 11, but if he does, I think regardless of who else is on the board, unless Chase Young also falls to 11, which I likewise don't see any chance in hell of happening, I think the Jets would have to jump on him. Short of Okuda, we talk about C.J. Henderson, and there are other players that the Jets might be able to grab perhaps in round two. We'll see what shakes out with guys like Gladney. Who do you like at corner? What do you think the Jets should be looking at in terms of things they might be able to do past pick 11? And also, as far as Akuda goes, you do agree with me, right, that regardless of whichever tackle might be on the board at 11, if Akuda's somehow there, the Jets have to take him. Oh, yeah. Akuda's the easy pick if he's there. Uh, that there, There's no question about that. Um, I would say in terms of corners that you can get later, because I, I don't think that they're going to get Akuda. And I also think that they'll probably end up taking a tackle at 11. So realistically speaking, like the most likely scenario that I can see is tackle in the first round, receiver in the second round. And now you're looking um, maybe at a, at a potential edge rusher in the third. Like it, even though they need corner, it could be till day three that, that we start to see them get a corner. Um, just it, depending on how the board falls. I could very easily see that scenario. So a day three corner for them that I think fits what they want to do um, and fills a need is Dane Jackson out of Pittsburgh. Not the biggest guy in terms of weight. Um, I remember at the Senior Bowl, he, he was like the lightest guy there, like 180 pounds, but then measured in a lot bigger at the Combine. So I think there's kind of a discrepancy there that um, – would be worth checking into of, of why the two measurements between senior bowl and combine were so different, but regardless of what his actual height and weight are, he plays big ultra physical, really good press corner at Pittsburgh. Every, every time you put on the tape on him, I mean, he is just beating receivers up really, really smart corner too. Um, you know, when I was down in mobile at the senior bowl, I would see him kind of make last minute shifts and, stands and last minute shifts in terms of alignment because he would read something based on formation and then immediately know what was coming um like there was a time where there was a motion into a stack and then he immediately started lining up everybody because he read screen all the way he popped outside and then just shot and, and made the tackle on the backfield so he's, he's a really smart instinctive corner not the fastest guy um, not the biggest guy, but I love his intelligence and play style. I think he fits exactly what Greg Williams wants, which is just smart physical players. And again, you're going to be able to get him on day three and get a solid contributor at corner. Um, so I, I'm a I'm a pretty big fan of Dane Jackson. I think he'd be an excellent fit. Let's talk a little quarterback, Brett. Now I know obviously this isn't a position that's going to be that interesting to most Jets fans because. We all assume Sam Darnold is the guy, and if nothing else, they're certainly not drafting anybody high in this year's draft, but there is that old Bill Parcells philosophy of draft a quarterback every year anyway, so I want to talk about some of the guys that maybe the Jets could get late in the draft as potential backup candidates, somebody that maybe could be groomed to be the long-term backup behind Sam Darnold, but before we get to that, you made a video on Joe Burrow, and you talked about how he's very similar to Patrick Mahomes, which is going to raise some eyebrows. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, people kind of conflate what I was talking about there. I wasn't saying that he had Patrick Mahomes' arm. Very few human beings have <laughs> Patrick Mahomes' arm talent. 
you know, what I was talking about was in terms of play style, in terms of being able to create something out of nothing when a play breaks down. And Joe Burrow, I mean, his passer rating actually went up when he was under pressure because he's a very good creative quarterback when plays get messy in much the same way that Patrick Mahomes is. And so I look at a, a quarterback who's able to roll right from pressure and then as he's falling away out of bounds, throwing a dime 40 yards down the field back shoulder against tight man coverage, like that's a Patrick Mahomes kind of throw, you know, and I don't think it's fair to just look at his arm strength and be like, oh, he's like a better version of Andy Dalton. No, Andy Dalton doesn't do that shit. You know, Andy Dalton doesn't create like that. Patrick Mahomes creates like that. Russell Wilson creates like that. Deshaun Watson creates like that. So when I'm comparing him to these guys, it's not based on physical traits. It's based on like actual, uh, like just miraculous plays that he's able to generate out of thin air that very few other quarterbacks are able to do. Tua Tagovailoa is heavily rumored to be the apple of Miami's eye. Talk to me a little bit about what you think of him as a quarterback prospect and if Jets fans should be nervous about the possibility of him being in Miami for the next 10 to 15 years. And also, are there other quarterbacks in this draft, perhaps late, somebody that the Jets might be able to pluck in the 5th, 6th, 7th round that you think could be a strong possibility as a developmental player to groom behind Sam Darnold as perhaps a long-term backup? Uh, in terms of guys that you're going to be able to get late on day three that you can groom, Cole McDonald comes to mind. Again, you know, big, strong, great arm. Um, you know, somebody who just has a body of a Greek God, quite frankly, like in terms of pure physical gifts, he's like, he's more gifted than Sam Darnold, but he's still a long ways away from, I think, being ready. So he's a pure developmental guy, but you know, in a few years, if your coaching staff really kind of works with him and molds him and, you know, he shows out in preseason or maybe Sam gets hurt and he goes in for a few games and has really good performance. All of a sudden, you you know, that's the guy you can trade for a high pick which is really the key of that Parcells strategy is you draft a quarterback, you develop them, and then you flip them for picks. Uh, the Patriots have done that a lot. Uh, the Packers have done that in the past. You know, you, it, it's not necessarily about cultivating players. It's about cultivating assets. So I think Cole McDonald is somebody you can take a flyer on in that regard. In terms of Tua to uh, the Dolphins, yes, you should be worried because Tua is a really good quarterback. His, really, his one problem is health. Um, I, he has not had a full season of health in the last three years and, and everybody knows that. And you can say, oh, well, the hip thing was a freak thing. The ankle thing, the ankle thing was a freak thing. It's like, well, okay. But after, if you get enough freak things every single year, eventually it just becomes the trend. And so that's what I'm kind of worried about is just lots of, of joint issues have cropped up over the last three years. And it's not like he's going to take less hard hits in the NFL so that's kind of my one worry with him. But in terms of just actual pure on the field grade, he's a tremendous quarterback, really quick release. And he's deadly in the RPO game, really quick decision maker. I think he's going to be one of those kind of dink and dunk you to death kind of quarterbacks. Um, but he also is, he has some creativity when plays break down too, like Joe Burrow, maybe not quite the same in terms of attacking downfield when plays break down, but in terms of being able to escape pressure and just get the ball out quickly to his check down, He's really, really good. So I, I think he's, just in terms of pure football grade, he's, he's, a, he's a hair under Burrow because I, I don't think he quite has the same vertical element to his game that Burrow does. Um, 
and there was a few throws where you look at Tua's arm strength and you're like, oh, okay, that's that's not the greatest. But uh, just in terms of a field general that can operate a quick passing game and just meticulously move the ball down the field, almost in a mold of like a Tom Brady, but with more mobility. Yeah, he's he's pretty damn good in that regard. So I think Miami um, is going to take him, and I think he's going to be a really good quarterback for them for a long time if he can stay healthy. But obviously, health is is really the the big concern there. Tom Brady with more mobility. Brett, are you trying to give Jets fans nightmares right now? Well, the the good news is that Miami does not have Bill Belichick, <laughs> which is the more important part of that equation. So I think you're okay overall. This is very true. This is very true. And thankfully, there's only one Bill Belichick in the division. I don't think Jets fans could take two of them. Brett Coleman of the Film Room, thank you so much for coming on. Always a blast talking to you. Really appreciate it. There's a reason, by the way, that this gentleman has almost a quarter of a million subscribers to his YouTube channel. It's because he's the best. His content is outstanding. And like I said, he is the perfect combination of well-produced videos and knowledgeable football content. So if you are not subscribed to his videos, go subscribe right now. Brett, what else do you have going on? I know that you just started a podcast too, right? Yeah, it's, I, I just started it with my buddy EJ Snyder, who's a kind of a fellow film guy. He's a, a tortured Bears fan, like I'm a tortured Texans fan. So uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, well, I shouldn't say fun. It's been a lot of misery lately, uh, you know, talking about the DeAndre Hopkins trade, the Nick Foles trade and all that. So it's, it's been fun last uh, the last few episodes. It's called the Bootleg Football Podcast. Uh, where we, we just kind of sit around, we drink whiskey, we talk about football, and uh, we, we lament the existence of Bill O'Brien. It, it's pretty fun. <laughs> Speaking of that, last thing before we run, I got to get your thoughts, and I know you made a video on this, but I want to hear them unfiltered as I throw it out at you, on this DeAndre Hopkins trade. I've talked about this on the podcast. In the summertime, I was told by somebody that has information on these kind of things, plugged into league circles, knows some people with different teams, that Hopkins was stealth available. This was in the summertime. Now, nothing came of it. So when the trade actually happened, I wasn't that surprised. I was surprised at the price tag, though. Obviously, there was some friction there between O'Brien and DeAndre Hopkins, but it just feels like they should have been able to get more, right? It's... (laughs) You look at what the Vikings got for Stephon Diggs, and then a few hours before, you look at what the Texans got for DeAndre Hopkins. That alone, just comparing those two trades alone is a fireable offense. I mean, how do you only get a second-round pick and the pleasure of having David Johnson's bloated contract now on your salary books? Like, that's the price you pay for DeAndre Hopkins is offloading a contract and only spending a second-round pick? Are you kidding me? Like it's 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 an unbelievably bad trade. I mean, it's a great trade for Arizona. It's an unbelievably bad trade for Houston. Um, like I, to me, for DeAndre Hopkins, like the minimum, the absolute minimum price we're talking about is a first round pick and probably a third round pick thrown in there. Getting anything less than that is a travesty, and they got way way less than that. Jets fans, just so you know. Not the only tortured souls out there. I know the Texans have been to the playoffs a bunch of times, but when Bill O'Brien is there making decisions like this, he may not be quite as bad as Adam Gase, but he's probably the best-case scenario that you're going to get from Adam Gase, so I don't really know how sunny that is for myself or you, Brett. 
Let, let me put it to you this way. The Texans have won the division the vast majority of years since O'Brien's been there. I think it's like four out of six years the, the Texans have won the division. Every other team in the AFC South has made an AFC championship in that span. Houston has not. <laughs> oh, man, that is not a comforting thought. And I think that that's probably something along the lines of the best-case scenario for the Jets when Adam Gase is here. Although, listen, let's keep our fingers crossed that it ends up being better than that. But, yeah, wow, that's a tough one. And Bill O'Brien's got all the authority there in Houston right now. Let's hope that that doesn't ever come to fruition here. Although, thankfully, Joe Douglas does have the six-year deal, so it would seem like Gase's path is probably blocked, although we do call him the usurper for a reason. Brett Coleman, again, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Go ahead and follow Brett on Twitter. It's at Brett with two T's, and then Coleman is K-O-L-L-M-A-N-N. Subscribe to The Film Room on YouTube and become one of about a quarter of a million people that watch his content. There's a reason so many people do it. It's because it's fantastic stuff. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.